Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're looking at one area of employment that is so widely dominated by women, and that is teaching. That's right. Teaching is sort of like totally the opposite trend of, of STEM fields. Yeah. STEM fields being male-dominated, trying to recruit more women into them, get more women interested, and young girls. Teaching is super female-dominated, and a lot of people are curious as to why. I was curious as to why, because it's not like it's always been that way. Exactly. There was a distinct feminization of the teaching profession that we will get into. But first of all, as we like to do on the podcast, let's throw some stats your way. This is coming from the National Center for Education Information. As of fall 2012, there were an estimated 3.7 million full-time teachers in secondary and elementary schools, 3.3 million of which are public school teachers. And the average salary, not too shabby, actually, the average salary for public school teachers is just under $57,000. But when you look at uh, being adjusted for inflation and all that stuff, the average teacher salary from 2011 to 2012 in that year was only about 1% higher than it was in 1990 to 1991. So not a lot of like raises going on. And also, I'm sure for all the teachers who are listening to this podcast right now, uh, I just want to acknowledge how many hours you do work. Right. I mean, you deserve having summers off. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Um, But the workforce also is trending younger, which is kind of interesting to see. Uh, The proportion of teachers under 30 rose dramatically from 2005 to 2011. And now more than one in five teachers surveyed are under 30 compared to just 11 percent in 2005. Right. Yeah. The proportion of teachers who are 50 and older dropped from 42 percent in 2005 to 31 percent in 2011. And this equates to fewer years experience, not saying that it's, you know, a teacher who's 29 years old is going to be not good. It simply means that we have less experience. Um, the proportion of public school teachers with five or fewer years of teaching experience increased from 18 percent in 2005 to 26 percent in 2011. And when you look at the demographics, it is still an overwhelmingly white profession with 84% of public school teachers being white and Hispanics are the fastest growing non-white group entering the profession. And uh, we should note too that as with a lot of podcasts, a lot of these statistics and what we're going to talk about is very US centric, but these kinds of trends you will also see in other countries as well. So Looking at gender in the U.S., 84% of American public school teachers are women. And that's actually up from 69% in 1986. Right. And the U.N. looked at a bunch of different regions and countries. And for the U.S., they broke down um, how many women are in different levels of education, you know, like high school versus kindergarten or whatever. They found that uh, pre-primary education has the most women teachers at 94.1 percent. That's followed by primary education at 87 percent, secondary education at 62 and tertiary, which would be like college. Uh, at 47.7% women. And speaking of men, this is kind of interesting. They're more likely than women to enter teaching 
through alternative routes. So in other words, you see a lot of women who start college saying, I want to become a teacher. I will pursue an education degree. Whereas men are more likely to graduate from college and be like, hey, you know, what's a good idea. Teaching. Right. Like I have a friend who was a, a biology major in college. He actually majored in food science. And so he was all on track to make Boku de Bucks working in the food science industry until he realized that that would involve just like working in a bunch of slaughterhouses for for years and years. And he was like, I'm not going to do that. So he ended up going back to school, getting his master's, getting his, you know, teaching certificates and all that stuff. And now he is a biology teacher and he loves it, P.S. But that is just one example of an alternate route of like majoring in something completely different than setting out from the get go to be a teacher. Yeah, but that gender gap of uh, teaching being an overwhelmingly female-dominated career in the United States is not just specific to the U.S. Uh, The U.N. looked around the world, and it is common to find more female teachers, particularly when you're looking at primary school education, like go all around the world except for sub-Saharan Africa, and you usually have women in, in the front of the classroom. So there seems to be this global pattern of teaching being dominated by women. But like we said, it was not always the case. And if you just look at the feminization of the teaching profession in the United States, it takes some unexpected twists and turns. Right. We we read a lot about the history of teaching. And this so this is coming from sources including PBS, the Department of Ed and writer Dana Goldstein. Um, who all looked at sort of how the the industry has, the, and the profession have changed over centuries. If we look back in America to colonial times up through the early 18th century, most teachers were men. They were they were dudes, but they they weren't set out to be teachers. They were probably on their way more likely to becoming lawyers, doctors or ministers. And so the the professional connections they made by heading up a classroom and teaching kids in a community was a great way to make connections in that community. Yeah. And you also have to realize, too, that prior to the early 1800s, education itself was pretty spotty. Mm -hmm. I mean, just looking at the U.S. in the late 1700s, there were very high illiteracy rates among girls at around 55%. Uh, most kids were taught reading specifically so that they could read the Bible. Uh, I mean, you might have wealthy girls who would be who would be taught by governesses, and some kids might be taught more in the form of apprenticeships. Mm-hmm. But education being something that, you know, mandatory schooling for kids was certainly not the norm back then. Right. That was that was still far off at this point. And if women were going to be teaching, typically they were, quote unquote, teaching in these things called dame schools, which is funny. Um, Just the name, not the not the institution. Uh, They served really more as babysitters than actual teachers. These were usually poor women who would take in a ton of kids and teach them basic things for a few pennies a day, like the alphabet and sewing. It's, I mean, to me, dame schools just sound like the old school equivalent of sort of in-home daycare centers Yeah, today, with probably lower levels of quality of care. Right, yeah. It was just families who had were, were not rich by any means, but who had enough extra cash on hand to be able to send their kids to learn to learn some basics, get a, kind of a basic foundation. So we get to 1800, and in the U.S., 90% of school teachers are men. And if you wanted to become a teacher back then, 
eh, you kind of just needed to breathe, basically. <laughs> uh, you All you had to do, really, was persuade a local school board that you were of good moral character and maybe possibly pass a test of general knowledge. It's not even until 1834 that Pennsylvania becomes the first state to require future teachers to pass a test of reading, writing, and arithmetic. Before then, it was just like, are you a good guy? Yes, sir, I am. <laughs> and Do you uh, know things? Do you have a small chalkboard <laughs> that you can take? All right, Godspeed. <laughs> and as far as education developments go, um, in the 1820s and 30s is when we see the rise of the common school era. And these common schools are the precursor to public schools. You have reformers like politician Horace Mann and intellectual Catherine Beecher arguing that there needed to be both more schools and more teachers. And a lot of people were getting on the bandwagon that the government should be providing free basic education to all kids, that it shouldn't just be a privilege for rich kids in wealthy homes. Yeah, Dana Goldstein writes about how, particularly as you're approaching the 1830s, quote, American political business and intellectual elite begin to come to a consensus that state governments should guarantee children a free and basic education. And Horace Mann and Catherine Beecher and also John Dewey are all about that. So they're like, okay, let's open all these schools. This will be great. Who's going to teach all these kids? Right, yeah. The whole thing is that opening these schools is going to be expensive. Where would all of these teachers come from? How are we going to be able to afford it? Well, obviously, we're going to look at the other half of the population, the people who, you know, we don't have to pay that much to. That's women. Women. Yeah, because one thing that's happening at the same time, too, because you might be thinking, well, uh, if they're opening all these schools, guys were 90 percent of teachers in 1800. Why don't you just have you know more jobs for that? guys? That's great. But we also have the Industrial Revolution mm-hmm. opening up all these new and better paying fields that men are being attracted away from teaching to go pursue, especially in larger urban areas. And so it makes sense that, okay, maybe we can have particularly younger unmarried women come and fill these roles. Because also we should note that literacy rates among women are now also starting to catch up to men. Right. But along with this, this whole like, yeah, let's just shove all this cheap labor into our classrooms, you also have the whole societal hurdle of, Women working? Women working outside the home? That's indecent. And so people like Horace Mann and Catherine Beecher had to figure out a way to sell it to people. That, yes, you want to be a teacher, and hey, parents, you want your daughter to be a teacher before she's married off. And so in the 1840s, you start to see, this is when you start to see the real, like, legit feminization of the teaching profession. Um, Because people like Mann and Beecher emphasized to serve a purpose, women's moral superiority. Mann, for instance, wrote, as a school teacher, a woman would be like an angel, quote, her head encircled with a halo of heavenly light, her feet sweetening the earth on which she treads, blah, 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 going on and on about the beauty of her virtue, that just because of the fact that she was born with a uterus, she is clearly moral superior to men 
and she would serve your children well. He was, uh, he wasn't heavy handed at all <laughs> in his so pitch. Uh, I also liked though how Beecher took the approach of just throwing men under the bus. <laughs> she, she said, yeah, obviously we want women in the classroom because they're super moral and also male teachers are quote, low, vulgar, obscene, intemperate, and utterly incompetent. To which, okay, also a little heavy handed. Catherine Beecher. But you got to remember, too, that in the context of the time, we have this, you know, the reign of the cult of true womanhood during this Victorian era. So this ties totally in with that, with the idea of, you know, women's, you know, on the domestic front, that being the rightful place for women, because you want them around the children to set the moral example, because this is when you have this idea of really emerging and taking shape of women being, again, the moral superiors to men. So naturally, they should be in charge of not only their moral education, but also their intellectual education. And hey, better yet, we're a bargain. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that's, that's great that you're telling us that we're so superior by virtue of the fact that we have ovaries, but really, I mean, this is just covering up for the fact that they are trying to attract women because they're cheaper. Um, and so by the 1850s and 60s, women are just flocking to teaching because not because they all grew up wanting to be teachers, because probably when they were growing up, that wasn't even an option yet. But they would have a salary. They had a degree of independence, a sense of purpose. They were leading children. I mean, that that is a noble cause no matter what generation you're growing up in. And perhaps a sense of adventure as well, because in the 1840s, the National Board of Popular Education sent 600 female teachers to frontier towns. Mm. Go west, young woman. Teach our teach our kids. And I mean, this this is tying into to our past episodes on secretarial work, the feminization of uh, clerical and secretarial work, sort of in a similar way, how it became more female dominated again, because they could pay us half what they would pay men. And there weren't many options, so we flooded that. Mm -hmm. And also our Madam's podcast where, hey, the going west was also very appealing. So you have all these different factors starting to swirl around. And with all these women flocking to the classroom, you have the rise of what are called normal schools to train this new teaching workforce. Yeah, what's interesting is that like... So as teaching is becoming, quote unquote, feminized and more the percentage of women over men as teachers is increasing, there's this sort of uneasiness that settles over everybody where they start to look at each other and they're like, oh, wait, we've got all these women because we told them they were more morally superior to men. But we don't actually think women are smarter than men. What are we going to do to make sure that the quality of education is maintained? And so there were a lot of political reformers mainly men around this time, who were saying, look, women just aren't cutting it. And they sought to attract a, quote, higher class professional. They wanted to make the classroom more standardized, uh, you know, just across cities, across regions, and make it into a test measured practice. And so that's when you get those normal schools established to basically teach the teachers. Um, but as teaching, as we go along and teaching becomes more professionalized, those classes move out of the normal schools and into regular universities. And so as a result of this professionalization of the teaching industry, you kind of have a giant wedge between the actual teachers in the classroom, the boots on the ground. They end up at the bottom of the hierarchy. 
and the leadership and administration, these leaders who wanted education to be recognized the same way that law and medicine were as a white collar, upstanding profession. And the bulk of those people were men. Yeah. I mean, if you just look at principles, you typically would have a male principal installed in schools. They would say to handle disciplinary problems, basically have a guy around to make sure that if these young teachers and we're talking very young, Mm -hmm. some of these teachers would still be teenagers teaching teenage boys sometimes who might match them or be larger than them physically. So they said, well, we need, you know, we need men around to make sure that we can keep everybody in line. Um, but then also the whole issue of the, the professionalization compounds that as well. So overwhelmingly, you have women in the classroom, but men overseeing the administration. Right. So moving into the 1890s and 1910s, women are still and now the majority of teachers, making up only a small minority of administrators and above. Um And because of this, they really end up with little say over their classrooms. They didn't have as many resources as they would have liked. They made far less money than they would have liked. But as human beings in the United States, they couldn't vote. What are you going to do? So you see a lot of women organizing into first teachers associations and then Unions, women like educators Margaret Haley and Catherine Goggin, who were angry enough at the state of teaching that they formed the first teachers only union, the Chicago Teachers Federation, and they rallied for improved pay, retirement benefits and tenure. Yeah. And Goldstein talks about how essentially the strategy behind this was since they could not vote, they would align themselves with unions to kind of get the the men in the unions to flex their muscles at the ballot boxes on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, and just thinking, though, about the lack of resources. I mean, teachers have a lack of resources today, right. let's face it. But even back then, imagine having even fewer resources than you would today in front of a classroom of 60 kids. That wasn't uncommon. And you also have this massive influx of immigrants. Mm-hmm. And so you're not even guaranteed that all your kids can even understand you or communicate in English with you. Yeah, you start to see around this time, especially um, from Margaret Haley, we start hearing like teachers should be able to teach how they want to teach and how they recognize that they know they need to teach. Because if half of your class can't even speak English, you're going to need to switch up your teaching style just a little bit. And so, but that's something you still hear today, like not wanting to teach to the common core, not wanting to teach according to No Child Left Behind, wanting to have kind of a democratization of the classroom under the teacher. Yeah, and the very fact that Haley was organizing women and aligning themselves with unions, that also was a major no-no. Like the the elite businessmen of the time were scandalized at the idea of women getting involved in unions. I mean, because again, remember, we couldn't even vote back then. Right. Haley ended up being called a nasty, unladylike woman after one episode where she uh, ended up suing uh, corporations who weren't paying taxes on land that they were leasing from Chicago public schools and then allied her Chicago Teachers Federation with the Chicago Federation of Labor, establishing teachers unions as a powerful force. So she was at the forefront of all this stuff. And as a result, I mean, she must have been doing something right to be called nasty and unladylike. Exactly. That's kind of a, a compliment in, in contemporary terms. Uh, and historical note, 
In November 1902, we have the very first teacher strike in the U.S. in Chicago due to this union organization that was happening. And it was led off by a woman named Janice McKeon, who kicked a kid out of class for using profanity. Again, these these pro these issues are are still happening today. Pretty much all of them that we touch on. Uh, The principal then sends the kid back to class. But McKeon's like, no, 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 you can't come back. So she was then, though, suspended for 30 days without pay. And a week later, 400 students, parents and teachers protested in support of her. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty incredible that, you know, you can say all this about feminization of the industry, but still feminization isn't necessarily a a nice term when you think about what people associate with traditional femininity. But the fact that all these people during this era were coming out in support of this woman and her ruling that no profane student, you shall not reenter the classroom. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Feminization should certainly not be interpreted as weakening of the profession. Right, right, exactly. Um, so moving into the 20th century in the 1910s uh, to the 1930s, just as it had earlier, women's women teachers increased clout and power in education, started to make men uneasy. And this is where we start to see the rise of worries about women's emasculating effects on their male students. Because if you look at 1925, for instance, male teachers make up only a quarter of the workforce. And so it's just it's funny to see how women dominating anything, even if they were originally invited to it by being told that they're morally superior. Everybody's still a little nervous and biting their nails over it. Well, even the fact that in 1925, men were making up a quarter of the teaching force that actually represented some a little bit of ground that they had gained back because uh, once more of those, you know, secretarial and office jobs started opening up to women kind of in the same way that the Industrial Revolution drew men away from teaching. Some women were being drawn away from teaching, you know, at the prospect of a secretarial job. And so you have a few more men coming into it, but still. You have, I mean, how long did it take? What, 60 years for the feminization process to be firmly cemented Mm -hmm. for all of time? For all time. In fact, from 1923 to 1950, this feminization process was so firmly entrenched that school districts generously started dropping their practices of banning married women from teaching. This was very uncommon. Basically, Teaching was a socially acceptable stepping stone in between living with your parents, essentially being a teenager and becoming a mother. And once you got married, you would probably become a mother soon thereafter. And no, ma'am, you will stay in the home. (laughs) That's right. I wonder if that's where we get like our stereotype of like old spinster stern teachers from it might the fact that they weren't married women were not welcome in the profession oh yeah that's very true Hmm. that's a good point Hmm. although we you know we don't have information on either though is why we give teachers apples interesting brain food i don't know i don't know cheap cheap (laughs) gifts bribery (laughs) well speaking of apples actually not speaking of apples at all we're going to take a quick break and get right back into this conversation on Women and teaching. And now, back to the show. 
Okay, so we mentioned before the break, we, we touched on the fact that while teaching is a majority woman-led uh, profession and that it's very feminized, so to speak, there is a divide between the actual teachers in the classroom and then the individuals who are leading the schools and the school district. And it's talked about as a glass ceiling in education that um, basically women just aren't entering those higher level professions in education. And the foundation for this was laid in the mid 1800s when you see that professionalization, that knee jerk reaction to all of these women in the classroom and men getting really concerned and so taking over almost instinctively those top tier positions. And that's something we even still see today because there are all of these. When we look at the modern teaching profession, you do see a lot more intensive efforts to recruit more male teachers. But at the same time, there's this general view of teaching as a lower rung profession, even though it is so integral to our societal functioning and, mm-hmm. you know, global competitiveness. And even though teaching is still sort of sold to women as a quote unquote woman friendly profession, it doesn't necessarily mean that education is allowing a lot of opportunities for advancement beyond just teaching kindergarten or whatever it might be. Right. Yeah. You look at I mean, I absolutely I'm not <laughs> I never have been in the teaching profession, but even I recognize that stereotype of teaching being sold as a woman friendly uh, profession. Oh, you know, you get off work at three. You're off all summer. It's great. No, no, that's not how it works. My friend who is a, uh, a, a elementary or preschool uh, teacher, I mean, she works all the time. She has two very young kids. I mean, this girl does not leave work at three. She works many hours and she works practically all summer. I mean, I would think she takes off maybe two weeks during the summer, but she's got to work on lesson plans. She has to plan all sorts of stuff. Being a teacher is not like an easy walk in the park. Yeah, I mean, it, it's because some would say that there's never really been, um, and maybe because it's impossible, a standardization of the profession in the same way as you would see with something like law or medicine. Right. Okay, so, so yeah, so like we were talking about, I mean, it's considered a woman-friendly job, but is it because women aren't exactly taking advantage of those uh, opportunities for advancement? So anyway, the study in 2007 that was in the journal Gender and Education looked at three main gender imbalances generally identified with teaching. So the first one is across education phases. So women are concentrated in the nursery and primary sectors, which maybe cause correlation, I don't know, are less valued and less rewarded. There's also an imbalance across subjects taught. So there's a lower proportion of women in math and science compared with other subjects like reading or English. And there's an imbalance across positions themselves. So women are underrepresented, like we're saying, in promoted posts across all education phases. But when you talk to teachers, the fact that statistically there are so many women in the classroom, it creates this perception that there are no professional barriers to advancement because they would look around them and say, we aren't being, you know, prevented from doing anything. How that would be impossible. There are so many of us 
here. And yet, I mean, if you look over in the UK, for instance, and, and this statistic is a little bit old. This is coming from 2005. But at least at that time, men were 3.1 times more likely to become head teachers than women. And that's in nursery and primary schools. And then if you move into secondary schools, they're 2.6 times likelier to become head teachers compared to women. Right. And if you move over to the U.S., this is coming from Rand. Um, in public schools in 1999 and 2000, in that school year, 44% of all principals were women, up from 35% in 1994 and up from 25% in 1988. Um, in 1999 and 2000, women made up 55% of public elementary school principals, but just 21% of public high school principals, which is where the money is. So you can see that as the kids are aging up, as like, you know, I guess the difficulty level of courses is moving up, um, we see fewer women. And then if you look at superintendents, no big surprise, the number drops off even more. Uh, this is coming from 2000, which again, a little bit dated, uh, but women comprise only 13% of superintendents, which actually represented double the proportion from 1992. So ground was being made. But when you think about, again, the fact that today, 86% of teachers in the U.S. are women, those numbers of, you know, the, the fact that we're only, say, 13% of superintendents, that's not really a reflection of how many of us are in sort of the feet on the ground workforce. Right. Now, What's interesting is that in charter schools, among among the principals of charter schools, women make up more than half, 54 percent of those principals uh, in 1999 and 2000. But men still made up a majority of the secondary school principals in both the public and the private sector. And looking at private schools, women made up the majority of all elementary and combined school principals and were 38% of high school principals. So it is notable that when you move out of the public school system into private and charter, you do start to see some differences. Mm -hmm. There is also, and I don't have the statistics right in front of me, but you also see a similar pattern too, I want to say, when it comes to racial diversity Mm -hmm. in administration, where when you move into private and charter schools, it does tend to get more diverse at the top. Yeah. At least I'm thinking about, cause I grew up, um, I started, I started in public schools, moved to a private school and you know, I literally didn't think about it until right this second, but my public elementary school principal was a woman. My private elementary school principal was a woman. My private middle school principal was a woman. It wasn't until I got to high school that the principal was a man. So that's interesting. It's like, oh, good. Yay. Women leading the pack. But oh, wait, until you actually get to the upper grades. Exact same pattern for me, uh, explained, though, by the fact that my mom was my principal during homeschool. (laughs) So I don't know if that counts. Um, But then that leads to questions, as with any conversation about women and professions and why aren't there more of us at the top? Are we simply not? to use a phrase that causes some people to cringe. Are we not leaning in? Is it because of the motherhood off-ramp, as it's sometimes called, that is preventing more women from taking on more administrative duties? Because we're already bogged down enough. I'm saying we, as though I'm also teaching America's youth. But (laughs) teachers are already bogged down enough as it is, just with all of the testing that has to be done. Then if you want to advance... 
you, you got to take on even more responsibility. Right. This is coming from that 2007 gender and education study over in the UK where a lot of the teachers they interviewed um, cited work, life, family, balance, all of that stuff as a reason why they themselves personally and maybe why they can see other women we're not pursuing those higher level positions because, you know, you have those things like career breaks after childbirth um, or just returning part time after you have a baby that are identified as major factors in women's underrepresentation at management level. Um, a lot of women also told the researchers about moving to support a husband's career because it was viewed as more important rather than staying put for a woman's teaching career because teaching is seen as a more portable position, even though, as we talked about in our military spouses episode, if you're moving all the time, it's not like you can move up the ranks as fast. And The Guardian looked at barriers and pointed out that a lot of recruiters themselves have prejudices, you know, based on your appearance. You know, women are supposed to look a certain way, act a certain way. And so if they're perceived as too confident or too aggressive then, oh, I don't know, you might not fit that that spot very well versus like a confident man who walks in the room and is like, I got this. He's viewed as more competent than a woman who acts the same but is just viewed as aggressive. Yeah, I mean, there are clearly so many variables going on. I mean, it's not just an issue of something like institutional sexism that is barring more women from, you know, climbing the ladder in the teaching profession. But another question along with that is sort of in the reverse of, okay, Maybe we need more women at the top, sure, to balance things out a bit. But what about having more men in the classroom? Because it does raise some red flags for people who study education or or more um, education critics, if you will, that teaching is so overwhelmingly female dominated Mm -hmm. because perhaps who is in front of the classroom, the gender influences how girls and particularly boys learn. Right. Yeah. Um, I would I would say that the bulk of the studies that Kristen and I read on this issue, as far as like, does the teacher's gender affect the students and how they learn? I would say the bulk of them were either murky or they said, no, it doesn't really have an effect where where one study did show that it had it did correlate to student success is an international study by the U.N. So this global perspective is important, but it's also worth pointing out that they're not necessarily looking at more developed countries. They're looking at countries where maybe girls' education is not prioritized as highly as boys. And so in this study, the U.N. found that the percentage of female teachers in primary education roughly correlates with girls' gross enrollment ratios, or GERs, in secondary education. They found that inversely, countries with the lowest GERs for girls in secondary education typically have the lowest shares of female teachers in primary education. And the significance of this, they point out in this international study, is that, hey, you know, this is a big deal when you consider that 64 percent of the people worldwide who can't read are women. Yeah. But... Things break down differently. The chips fall a little bit differently when you're looking at countries like the U.S., the U.K., um, while some researchers have said, yeah, it absolutely affects, you know, how boys and girls learn to read or how they learn to do math. I would say that in my totally expert opinion, 
I would say that it seems like more studies are showing it's really more the teacher's expertise and the teacher's confidence and their familiarity with the material and their ability to clearly convey that to the students. That has a whole lot more to do with it than what's in their pants. (laughs) Yes. Over and over again, you see, particularly for if you look at STEM courses, the science, tech, engineering and math, let's talk about a female math teacher Studies find that that woman will have positive outcomes for female students who we would think of as lagging behind boys in math traditionally. But if she is taught by a female teacher who is excellent and confident at math, then she will succeed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all these kind of no brainer findings in, in my, again, uh, lay opinion reading the study findings. But, I mean, there there was this massively controversial study finding not too long ago uh, led by the Stanford professor, Thomas D., who was looking at 1998 survey data among thousands of eighth graders. And he acknowledged, hey, I know it's 1998. It's a little bit data, dated, but this data is really rich. And he found a very solid gender-based interaction, basically Boys do de- better with male teachers. Girls do better with female teachers, to which people said, well, are you arguing for same-sex classrooms? That's a controversial idea. He said no, because once you start breaking down those very general findings, yet again, you just start digging into all of these classroom variables of, well, how well is the teacher trained in a subject matter? Right. What is the classroom like? Where are these schools that you're looking at? Because you also have to look at, the schools that are being examined, whether or not they are in a lower socioeconomic area that might not be receiving as many rich learning resources as other, say, charter schools in wealthier areas. Right. And you also have to look at one thing that we've talked about on the podcast before in, in different contexts. But but that is the fact that both men and women uh, respond often better to male students. And so, you know, there's a whole lot of moving parts with this. But um, a 2011 study in the journal European Sociological Review, for instance, points to, they basically found that, okay, there's no correlation between, you know, gender and the student's success. And the significance of that, they said, is that the popular call to have more male teachers in primary schools is not the key to tackling the growing disadvantage of boys. Because we see there's all these trend stories lately about, you know, girls are surpassing boys at every level of education. More young women than young men are going to college and and going on to get their master's and Ph.D. on and on and on. And they're saying that it's not because there weren't enough male teachers in their younger years, there's just probably so many factors at play. Yeah. Take, for instance, now this is moving into China, so let's toss another variable onto the pile. But there was the study looking at Chinese primary school students in 2010, and it found no support for the idea that boys learn better from men. Rather, they found that both boys and girls learn better from women. But again, it has nothing to do, as Caroline said, with what is in their pants or skirt or culottes. Rather, they found that the kids simply preferred learning from a woman because the women tended to have a more patient teaching style, whereas the men in these classrooms tended to have a more authoritarian style. Mm -hmm. 
again, you can't extrapolate that to every individual teacher, but that's just, uh, you know, a clear example of how you really making these broad brush generalizations of women are better for girls, men are better for boys is that's really hard to back up once you start unraveling all of the different influencers in how classroom learning actually takes place. Right, because when I'm thinking back over my own personal experience, you know, I talked about uh, my principles, you know, um, my favorite, some of my favorite teachers were men, and they were teaching me in English and language arts. Um, and I didn't feel like I was not able to speak up. I didn't feel like I was being made to, you know, feel dumb or anything like that. I felt just as engaged as when I had a brilliant woman for an English teacher in high school. Um, I think it all depends, all depends. I don't know. I think a lot of it depends on teaching style. Does the child respond to that teacher? Is the teacher, you know, taking the extra time to make sure that the students get it? whether they're male or female, however they do engage the students. Yeah, in high school, the teachers that I most responded to and pretty evenly split between men and women were the ones who I felt were the most invested in my learning, who respected me as a student. Yeah, that's key. And who I had two English teachers, actually, female English teachers in high school who I just per, per, on a personal level just did not like me. Hmm. They would make comments to me. They would call me out. They, I would, I was a very good student, but they just didn't like me. And it was always a terror being in mm-hmm. that classroom. Whereas I had, you know, a male English teacher, for instance, who was very nurturing and would ask me questions and same with all the kids in the classroom, you know, but Again, that's just going to depend too on where you're sitting. I mean, what kind of resources do you have? How large, how many kids are you having to oversee? Are you mm-hmm. dealing with kids who might have learning disabilities in the class as well? What kind of classroom management do you have to deal with? So many factors. And the fact that what's unfortunate about the, the feminization of teaching is that it's almost like, and, and Dana Goldstein talks about this, how that's sort of been manipulated to underscore the vital importance uh, and and seriousness and professionalization of that job. Whereas it's like, oh, how sweet. Girls just want to become kindergarten teachers. Give them an apple. That's really precious. But the job itself is a lot tougher, I think, than than people have historically given it credit for. Oh, sure. I mean, like, do you have teacher friends? Uh, my mom is a teacher. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's so much work like it blows me away. Like I'll have a stressful day and it does not even equate to my my friends who's a, who's a teacher, her stressful day, because, I mean, we just get to go to work and just do our jobs right. and talk with people over the water cooler and it's fine. She has to go to work and deal with grownups, but also deal with a million children with runny noses and making sure they get it and they comprehend the material and Johnny's not running out the door and, you know. In college, I tutored kids in middle school and elementary school for the CRCT test. And Caroline, it was a daily test of my patients. Granted, I didn't go to school for teaching, but it gave me a wholly newfound respect for the people who do that day in and day out. Because even working in small groups with kids is no small task. 
It's not. It is not. And and that's why, you know, some of the stere- some of the lingering stereotypes really kind of boggle my mind. But there is I mean, there's so much spinning, though, when you look at all of the studies on education and all these professionals really trying to find out what works and what doesn't. And we've been through we haven't even gotten into conversation on all of the different teaching fads mm-hmm. of, you know, back in the day when teachers were discouraged from reading out loud to kids right. because they thought it was bad for children's comprehension that they should learn to just read silently to themselves, which is also important. I digress. But there's it's like that we've never really figured it out for mm-hmm. some reason. And maybe it's just because our clients, the children, continue changing right, and their environments. So we could go on and on and on. But I want to hear from teachers out there. Are any of you listening? Was this, I hope, it, <laughs> informative and not even more exhausting than your day job? Let us know what you think, though, about all of this. Momstuffatdiscovery.com. Male teachers want to hear from you as well. And are there any teachers out there who have tried climbing up the ladder? Have you encountered challenges to that? And let us know what it's like to be a teacher today. Momstuffatdiscovery.com, again, is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or send us a message on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now about video games. Libby is writing to us from New Zealand, uh, and she said she wanted to share her experience as a girl gamer. Libby says, I'm in my late 20s, and I started gaming when I was very young because I lived with male cousins who gamed extensively, and I eagerly joined in. I was also very lucky to have my mom, who loved consoles and was enamored with Tomb Raider, so it's been a normal part of my life for almost as long as I can remember. I don't really consider myself a girl gamer, but simply a gamer. Sometimes I might refer to myself as a lady gamer, and I have a few female friends who I game with, and we sometimes call this time we set aside to game with each other as lady gaming. I was surprised to hear the definition of hardcore on the podcast because I never really thought of myself as falling into this category, but I very much do. I easily play a couple of hours each night and then several hours on the weekend. Fortunately, my husband is a gamer too, and we enjoy playing games and spending time together in this way. How I manage to fit all the other life things in is a mystery. I can absolutely relate to having a resume or a catalog of games in the back of my mind ready to go should someone question my gamer cred, the ones I've played, the ones I've liked and disliked, and what's happening currently in the gaming world. I'm even tempted to start listing them here as if I need to prove myself as a gamer, but I'll spare you. Often people are surprised that I play games at all, but they're even more surprised when they realize I play first-person shooters, among other genres. Once they've settled into this idea, I've found that it does mean I often have something in common with men as well as a few women, and we form a friendship around this shared interest. With online or MMO games, I try not to reveal my gender to strangers, and I've not really had too many negative experiences. I've had the occasional comment like, that's hot, or you're really good. Mostly I feel like I want my gaming to be judged on its own merits, and if I reveal my gender, I will automatically have something extra attached to my abilities like, oh, you sweet little girly thing, you've done so well. Even though this can be kind of annoying, I feel very lucky that this is the worst I've had. I've not had too many people doubt my gamer cred, and I've generally been accepted into gamer circles in real life. Well, so that's awesome, Libby. Thanks for sharing your story. Well, and I've got an email here from John, and it's a pretty long email, so I can't read the whole thing, but just wanted to pull out some of the stuff that he talked about. 
So he writes, The portrayal of all characters in video games isn't great, not just women. Men in most games are portrayed as being in impossible shape. For example, none of these are representations of normal people. If anything, the women are more realistic than the men. As far as for women being fully fleshed out characters, bring it on for male characters as well. For most of gaming history, all characters in video games have been one-dimensional, if even that. Games were not originally made to tell stories. They were built on a game mechanic with goals to accomplish. The two paddles and Pong were not given complex backstories, and neither were Mario or Princess Peach. There are calculators now that are more powerful than the system that Mario originally appeared on, and Mario is only slightly more advanced technologically than one of those paddles and Pong. The hardware didn't really exist back then to tell complex stories. Plus, the people making the games were not good writers. It's only been very recently that the video games industry has been attracting good writers, and most writers initially went into games if their career as a novelist or screenwriter didn't take off. It's also taken a long time to figure out how to tell a story through the medium of a game, except for the genre of point-and-click adventure games, which lent itself to storytelling much more. However, games have slowly been getting better, with games such as Walking Dead, which has an excellent story and good female characters, both strong and flawed. Movies started out in a similar way. They were initially just a gimmick showing something like a train moving with no plot and then developed into its own art form over time as technology progressed. And he goes on to say, I think that what makes male gamers irritated, myself included, is that criticism of video games seems to be coming from people who don't know that much about video games or their history. I've been waiting my whole life for something like the Citizen Kane of gaming, as have most other passionate gamers. The outrage and demands for fully developed female characters, especially when referring to old games like Mario, seems silly and misrepresents the gaming community and industry. Video games is still a very young medium, and the ability to tell good stories with good plot development is only a recent thing. I'd just like to add that although I've been using terms like gamer and gaming community, they mean as much as moviegoer or movie-watching community. It can make it seem like there is one big block of gamers with a hive mind, and I'm sure someone would have told me by now if that existed. I hope you get a chance to read my email. I've been a regular listener for a couple of years, and this is the first time I've written in. It would be great if you could address these points somehow. I realize that although I've tried to keep this as short as possible, it's too long to be read out on the show, which, surprise, surprise, John, we're reading your letter. And something that we addressed heavily in our two episodes that was not addressed in the part that you read, Kristen, is just the, the culture, the gaming culture at large. You know, it's like the, the conversation is so much bigger than just, like, who's on the screen. It's also who's holding the controller and just sort of... Yeah, Anita Sarkeesian isn't demanding a backstory for Princess Peach. It's more using Princess Peach as an example of how maybe we should think a little bit bigger and instead of just using women as props in a male protagonist hero arc why not get more women in there who you don't have to brutally murder and get out of the way i know that there's a lot of male-on-male violence in video games too i just i honestly i don't understand the outrage at this radical notion that maybe women could be portrayed a little bit better in video games or could be the heroes the protagonists yeah. But I appreciate, though, your thoughtful response. And uh, because this is a conversation, I'm sure that it's not going to go away anytime soon. So if you have thoughts you want to share with us, again, our email address is momstuffatdiscovery.com. You can also find all of our podcast, blogs, and videos in one place that you should visit every single day to keep us alive. It's stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. 
more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 